0: This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Okay, I think we're
1: ready to begin. Um, Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. And thank you very much for this opportunity to welcome you all on behalf of the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies, or WIFPICS, to this panel discussion on the occasion of World PICU Awareness Day 2023. So this session is the culmination of an exciting World PICU Awareness Week. We have had multiple events hosted by different regions across the world, all focusing on this year's overriding theme of sepsis. Today on World PICU Day, I'm really honored to open this panel discussion on global perspectives for the early recognition, resuscitation and management of pediatric sepsis. I'd like to specifically thank our host, Open Pediatrics, and Mark Ansimino from the Sepsis CoLab for moderating what I'm sure will be an insightful and very relevant discussion to us all. So without further ado, Mark, please let me hand over the chair to your capable hands, and thank you to all of our panelists and our attendees. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Brenda, and a very warm welcome to everyone wherever you are. Um, It is a great honor and privilege to be able to chair this panel. And I really want to thank those panelists who have given up their time to participate. So first of all, just some housekeeping things. We are going to have five panelists each give a five minute presentation. And then we're going to go to a question and answer session. So first of all, as you're probably aware, the session is being recorded and will be available as a podcast um, through Open Pediatrics. Um, Second of all, I would ask that if you have any questions from the audience, that you put these in the chat. Um, That's gonna be the easiest way for us to actually get to these questions. And obviously, as we go through each panelist, we will not have time for questions between the panelists. So it's most important that you put your questions there at that time. And hopefully we'll be able to address as many of those questions as 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 possible. Um, the. Um, and I hope that the second half of the session will be a very engaging conversation between both our panelists and some other experts that will we bring um, into the session, but as well as with the audience as we discuss the challenges that all of us have faced implementing sepsis guidelines. So, without further ado, I'm going to pass the uh, microphone over to Cynthia.
3: Hello, good morning from Brazil. Hello, speakers and participants. Uh, it's a big pleasure to stay here today morning with USU. Thank you very much, WPICS and Open Pediatrics, for invitation me to represent Brazil here in, in Latte. I'm Cynthia Johnston, I'm a physiotherapist in Brazil, PhD and Pomonology and Intensive Care Neonatology and Pediatric. I'm a professor of cross-graduate Program in Pediatrics in University of São Paulo and coordinator of Permanent Medical Education in Pediatrics in, at the Hospital Santa Catarina Paulista, that's a private hospital here in São Paulo. I'm a member of ZLACIP-LATAM and chair of the Department of Physiotherapy in Brazilian Society Intensive Care, and with big pleasure, I'm a board of WPIX2. Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: So, Cindy, can you tell us a little bit on how you've been involved in guideline development or or implementation?
3: Yes, of course. Thank you, Mark. Uh, In Brazil, we have the main contribution related to these five uh, important or principal points. The first is integration with the multidisciplinary team, especially with the nursing and medical teams, uh, to ensure the early recognized of neonatal and pediatric sepsis. That's. Two is ask the patient: "Is really have sepsis?" That's a, we all the time asking if it's true they have sepsis. You really recognize the sepsis, or this is another thing. The third is uh, the team and families' guidance to recognize the warning signs and symptoms of sepsis. The other point in guidance of families and chronic complex children to recognize the alert signs of the sepsis at home level. It's very important because they need a, a training to recognize it at room, room. this. And the, the last point is the training of health professionals to application of the sepsis guidelines for recognition, the treatment instruments in the first hour of the, the, the sepsis diagnosis. In the resuscitation phase, uh, we try, try to, fact, is, uh, the training of the team as well as the structure of the materials and equipments for adequate supply of oxygen therapy and ventilation support, non-invasive or invasive, in the most uh, severe case, steps and the uh, shock sector. Uh, this is the five more important points for us and, and for education, the equip. Uh, the...
2: Thank you for the ask. So maybe you can tell us, you know, some of your successes, like what, what would you say was your biggest success in implementing guidelines?
3: The big success is training the the multidisciplinary team, is principal in first uh, time in the room level because we train these parents to to show and to see the the problem at room, principally because we have many chronic complexes children here. The big success here are recognize the signs of the sepsis at home in the train this family and the the keep the team of the nurses to to recognize this in the in the level room, and not uh, just in the hospital because this is very important because it's more uh, quick uh, treatments you can do in the emergency care because they have um, uh, more uh, quick uh, reconnaissance at room and second in the emergency care too.
2: Thank you very much, and and maybe you can. Tell us about one of the biggest challenges, and I think you know the same questions really go to all the panelists, and I, you don't need, you need to really have me ask you the question. But maybe Cynthia, you can tell me what what did you experience as one of your biggest challenges that you had in implementing guidelines?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, but not in, in the, the, the all hospitals in Brazil, but in some hospitals, the great difficulties to obtain the result of the lactate dosage. In the first hour of sepsis. In the other problem we have here and need to change is the registering uh, in a digital record or, or writing the registering. Maybe we have the diagnostics but the, the people don't registering this uh, and this difficult in the hospital, the informations. And other point we need to change here is improving the fluid therapy optimization in terms of volume and infusion time in the first hour uh, in the sepsis.
2: Thank you very much, Cynthia. Thank you. Um, we go to our next panelist, Jerry. You wanted a brief introduction and then maybe just go through the same questions. Thank you.
4: Okay, thanks, Thank you. thanks Mark. And hello everybody. I'm Jerry Safton, a consultant nurse in pediatric critical care based at Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. So for my sepsis input, I want to tell you about DETECT. Um, An NIHR funded research study that I led, so this was a single site whole hospital study which introduced the use of smart mobile technology to proactively screen. um, children admitted to hospital to look out for early signs of sepsis and other causes of deterioration. The primary outcome was emergency transfer to critical care from inpatient wards following critical deterioration and the secondary outcome focused on sepsis. For the study intervention, we developed bespoke apps which ran on mobile handheld devices to screen children in three ways. Once per shift, the children with pre-existing risk factors for sepsis were identified. Each time that vital signs were documented, the children with an increased risk of subsequent critical deterioration were identified using the uh, local um, Alderhey age-specific paediatric early warning score. And then once the pews were displayed, there was focus prompts to identify a new suspicion of sepsis. So the questions were, does the patient have signs of infection or symptoms, and could this be sepsis? Once the new suspicion of sepsis was acknowledged, an age-specific sepsis assessment based on the modified NICE guidelines were loaded to the device, and the documented sepsis assessment pre-existing risk factors, clinical and physiological signs, were used to automatically stratify the level of sepsis concern. The Detect apps incorporated automated audible real-time alerts with clinical information, which were sent to the nurse in charge of the ward shift and to the clinical team responsible for the child. Three alerts signal situations with increased risk for subsequent critical deterioration that required an immediate response. The alerts were new sepsis concern, a recognised medical emergency, high pews, um, in our organisation that means the patients are heading towards needing high dependency care, and critical pews, which in our organisation means the child is heading towards needing paediatric intensive care. These alerts meant that sepsis was actively considered as a differential diagnosis for all cause deterioration. Once the suspicion of sepsis was acknowledged, the sepsis bundle of interventions automatically loaded to the device to prompt staff to complete these in a time-critical fashion and to capture the time chronology for compliance. So for me, overall, the success of the Detect study was in the enormous organizational change to proactively seek out early signs of sepsis for all inpatients, rather than having to remember to consider sepsis in certain situations. The use of this smart technology provided an end-to-end deterioration solution with real-time audible alerting to key staff, which prompted an immediate response, and this delivered a positive clinical impact for children and their family. The study found that the absolute number of emergency transfers to critical care with suspicion of sepsis dropped by more than half, and the overall incidence of of these transfers with suspected sepsis dropped from 4.6 cases per thousand hospital admissions to 3 per 1000 which was both statistically and clinically significant of course there were challenges one of the nuances of how we was uh, the nuances of how we speak about infection and sepsis we found that the term sepsis had been used interchangeably with infection and there was a risk that staff and families would be unclear regarding the urgency for intervention for example staff spoke about doing a sepsis screen whenever infection was considered even when there were no clinical signs of a regulated host response to infection. And conversely, they might also speak about infection when signs of sepsis were present. So this require, required ongoing education and conscious communication between us all. So finally, the technology used within the DETECT study required clinical oversight and continuous quality improvement methodology to sustain compliance and improve clinical outcomes. So my main take home message here is, you, that you won't detect signs of sepsis early if you're not actively looking. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Jerry. And please post your questions in the chat. Um, and um, that's great. Um, so, Titra, do you want to go next, please? Thank you.
5: Yeah. Thanks very much um, uh, to WIFPICS, uh, Brenda Open Pediatrics, for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be part of this exciting program. And my name is Suchitra Ranjit. I work at Apollo Children's Hospital at Chennai in South India. Um, it's quite challenging to work in a tropical country because when a child comes in with fever and shock, it's the treatment, I mean, the, the underlying etiology could be bacterial sepsis, it may be dengue, it could be scrub, sometimes malaria. So it's really hard to know. Um, And um, that's the reason why we are kind of working on a more, uh, a mix of personalized and protocolized treatment. So even with bacterial sepsis, just like uh, it's been described in adults, we now know that, There are many phenotypes. So there are some children who require more fluids. There are some with predominant cardiac function, many who are vasodilated. And um, so uh, a bunch of sepsis researchers, 13 of us got together. And the slide is from a recent article that has been accepted in Lancet Child Health on a reappraisal of hemodynamic support. And the bottom line really is that one size doesn't fit all but how are we going to individualize for every single child that first comes to the emergency room so it's we need to work with a mix of protocolized and then personalized treatment so protocolization entails early recognition training to um to stabilize the uh, vitals to get a peripheral access or intraocious provide oxygen etc and um the, I, i'm just going to enumerate uh, i think we can if we can um take off the slide now or if it can't is this, yeah so i'm just going to uh enumerate the five main takeaways of this manuscript on sepsis reappraisal. Firstly, unless children are really losing fluids actively, they don't really need a whole lot of fluid. So start, we kind of advocated uh, starting considering just starting with 10 ml per kilogram, another 10 ml per kilogram, and considering earlier vasoactive, even via a peripheral line, because Earlier, vasoactives can mobilize fluid from the dilated vascular compartment actually improves the venous return in a very sustained manner, unlike fluids which can be ill-sustained, right? Mm -hmm. So, and even in children who present with hypotensive shock if their blood pressure is low, rather than give them bolus after bolus with fluid, and another option would be to start a vasoactive, to control the um, blood pressure and circulation. Because some children who who present with hypotension could have a cardiac element. And they really worsen if we give them, if we treat all of them the same and give them extra fluid. Right? I mean, not extra fluid like the protocol actually says 620 and 20 and 20. Of course, you need to reassess this um their uh. They need to reassess between every bolus for worsening, but giving them earlier inotrope vasoactive agent, depending on what phenotype you might feel the child has, really works. And um, yeah, so it's I mean individualization does require experience. Uh, you can't ha- you can't have the junior most person who who um, uh, who assesses a child make decisions that they're not equipped for. So the, the mix of protocolized and individualized may be uh, the way to go. So these are just preliminary suggestions. They're just kind of uh, a few thoughts that we had. And the slide that was put up now is part of the manuscript, which is going to be out enough in about four to six weeks. And hopefully that will uh, kind of engage and interest, a new way of conversation um, going forward. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Sathitra. And I'm sure there's lots of questions around that. And please, everybody, go to that publication when it comes out, Sathitra. And hopefully, we can help promote that as well. I think this is really important work. And I think it's something that most of us have known for a long time. So um, and I know you've been pushing this. So um, let's. move on then to to John. Thank you, John. And please keep the questions coming. And if any of the experts want to answer any of the questions, um, please feel free to do so. Thanks.
6: Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Um, Thanks to the organizers for inviting me to be part of this um, presentation today. Um, Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our uh, audience and those who are listening to us. Um, Yes, um, I am John Pia. I'm a pediatric intensivist at the Konfarnochi Teaching Hospital in Ghana. Um, Quite a a new uh, pediatric intensive care services, relatively new in Ghana. Uh, We established the first one in 2015, but subsequently we've had some progress uh, in bringing others, supporting others, and then bringing others up. Um, On the issue of guideline development in Ghana uh, or locally, uh, we don't have our own uh, guidelines yet. So we rely heavily on uh, international guidelines like the survival services guidelines and others. There's no one way of doing it and each and everyone knows what they they want. Contribution as at this point is to look at what we have available in resource limited settings, working with other colleagues uh, uh, from other low resource settings. Actually, we, we published, we highlighted challenges facing uh, low resource settings and then using the survival uh, uh, sepsis guidelines in managing uh, children with sepsis in low resource settings. Uh, to also move on to other is a major because documented in most places in, in Ghana. And I think uh, it's, the, it's neonatal sepsis that some, uh, usually get uh, recognition, but sepsis in the other pediatric uh, age groups are really not documented. And so we don't really understand and appreciate the magnitude of the problem. We have infectious diseases like malaria and uh, others, but we don't appreciate the fact that these, most of those dying actually dying from sepsis. And uh, usually they will need to be paid, attention needs to be paid to them. And generally diagnosis is usually done very late in few places that we are able to make the diagnosis. Uh, So patients usually come to uh, those who manage services typically. Uh, As I said, the documentation is not only at the local level, but at the national level. So there's no reporting on what is happening to appreciate and also affect policy. Uh, in managing a, pa- a patient with sepsis, it's very important that we are able to identify what microbial organism or what microbe actually is uh, causing the sepsis to be able to manage appropriately. Malaria, fortunately, they have the uh, rapid uh, diagnostic tests which is available uh, nationwide that can be used. HIV can also be done. TB, um, not that many. Viral panel. And- uh, cultures, uh, viral screen, in terms of cultures are difficult to come back, and only a few places that we are able to do that. And that also transfer or goes into the management itself, because then you don't even have a microbial uh, pattern to be able to identify which antibiotics to treat, to use the treat. And that's really affecting the way we do things. Wherever you go, there are different ways of managing children uh, with sepsis in terms of antibiotics. So that's, that's a huge uh, uh, problem. But uh, in look, uh, at my, within the hospital I work with, we have made sure that at least uh, we ensure all patients coming in with sepsis at least will have some form of uh, diagnostic to be able to come up. And as a result of that, we have come up with some patterns locally, antibiotics that we use to treat patients. In terms of resuscitation, uh, I mean, it's, it's a key component in managing sepsis. And identified with the uh, our, uh, previous speaker talking about uh, even what fluids to give, how to give it. And then, uh, it, especially in the context of uh, publication by uh, the colleagues from Kenya, we're working on uh, sepsis fluid management uh, fish, the fist trial is becoming a little bit here and there back and forth but uh, what we have managed to do at the local level and spreading to other uh, uh, cities is the fact that we also have to be very careful in terms of fluid administration not to be uh, too overzealous. With five males, 10 males with kg fluid bolus. We assess and then monitor the patient to be sure that they are actually fluid responsive before we move on to the next step. We have uh, we have had some success. I have had some of the things that we have done uh, is to bring on board the use of inotrope in terms of uh, sepsis. This was virtually absent the past, uh, in the uh, last uh, 10, seven years. We, we virtually did not do that. Wherever you go, but now we are seeing increasing use of inotropes to push up when there is poor perfusion, and I, I think this is actually really helping improving outcomes of a patient with, with sepsis. There are other uh, other uh, other monitoring uh, uh, to monitor monitoring patients. We do basic monitoring. We don't have fancy We don't do uh, uh, what do you call it central venous. Uh, 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 oxygen saturation monitoring. We don't do uh, IVC uh, pressure monitoring. So, it's, yeah. So, these these are a little bit foreign to us, but again, uh, using the basic um, uh, perfusion indicators, whether the patient is going to respond to the antibiotics, sorry, the IV fluids that we are given. And then within the first, star, we know uh, uh, administering antibiotics within the first is very key in the uh, in uh, changing the course of patient with sepsis. Uh, what we have uh, we identified earlier on was the fact that it took forever for antibiotics to be provided. Usually patients actually be out of pocket in many places in Ghana. So whenever they need it, you write a prescription and then they go out and get it. And that has become, that actually delays uh, patient care in terms of administration of antibiotics. So what in our setting, what we have done is that we, we have a system where we have a list of emergency drugs. And previously, we didn't have antibiotics on it, and it's not everywhere still, but at least within our unit, antibiotics is an emergency. We've listed it as an emergency medication. So you don't need patient or parents who do not need to go out and then get antibiotics. So sometimes looking for money before they can get the antibiotics. It usually takes about 12, 24 hours before you're be able to give the first antibiotics. But with this strategy, we've, uh, we've been able to achieve a lot of uh, this opt- uh, our objective of introducing or giving antibiotics within uh, one hour. Um, ventilation-wise, most of our patients who come in because they come in late, they are in really bad shape with severe respiratory distress requiring or, or, uh, support. Uh, It's expensive uh, to get um, uh, mechanical ventilators. In many places, what we started was, we started this improvised uh, CPAP using regular uh, water bottle with uh, basal prong, um, uh, oxygen tubing, where we we, we improvise to provide either we call it CPAP, whether we call it high flow nasal oxygen. At some point in time, at least we have used that to support patients in severe respiratory distress as a result of the septic process ongoing, and that really has uh, has really we've seen quite a lot of improvement in some uh, in these areas. Overall, we I, I, I personally have seen that. Uh, People, many more people are now beginning to appreciate what sepsis is uh, uh, in terms of uh, identification, in terms of initial resuscitation, in terms of providing antibiotics. And then uh, generally other things that we have done uh, as as uh, uh, or I have been part of is the formation of a group which we call Ghana Sepsis Alliance, which uh, brings uh, healthcare workers together. And the goal is eventually to move on to the level of developing uh, nationwide uh, guidelines uh, to suit our current uh, environment. I guess uh, this this approach uh, has in one way or the other, on, on in its very small way, has actually uh, significantly helping reducing um, uh, mortality and then uh, morbidity as a result of that. Lastly, I'd like to say that the major challenge is delayed diagnosis. And that is where uh, I have. Uh, so, hearing others talking about early identification, uh, we, we also have the same problem to move towards identifying.
2: Thank you Thanks. very much, John. Thanks, John. And you are obviously a leader in Africa in uh, implementing uh, PICU, So, congratulations. Um, last but not least, we hand over to Teresa. Thanks, Teresa.
0: Uh, Thanks, Mark. So, hi, I'm Teresa Kortz, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be here today and with such amazing panelists. Um, I'm representing the United States today. I work at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm an associate professor in uh, clinical pediatrics and attending physician in the pediatric intensive care unit. I'm also program director for the Institute for Global Health Sciences affiliate program and the Pediatric Global Health Pathway and the Pediatric Critical Care Lead for the UCSF World Health Organization um, collaborating center. And in my other life, I'm also a physician scientist and I study sepsis ideology to John's point, as well as prognostic biomarkers and the epidemiology of acute critical illness in resource limited settings. And so while my clinical work is primarily in the United States, my research interests are in the global south and my involvement in the development and implementation of sepsis guidelines has really been at the global level. In 2017, the World Health Assembly adopted a resolution aiming to improve the prevention diagnosis and clinical management of sepsis. And as part of that resolution in 2020, I had the opportunity to join the World Health Organization as a sepsis consultant. And I had many opportunities and, um, and roles in this position, And uh, one of which was to be the member of uh, the core writing team that wrote and published the first WHO global sepsis report. We also initiated the WHO sepsis guideline process, which was unfortunately derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic like so much of the work that we were doing at the time. Um, Regarding sepsis successes, however, I think that we've actually witnessed a significant global improvement in pediatric sepsis management in our lifetime. A recent systematic review and meta-analysis of 94 studies in over 7,000 pediatric patients by Tan et al. in 2019 showed a declining trend in case fatality in pediatric severe sepsis and septic shock between 1980 and 2016. So that the global case fatality rates have actually decreased from 43% to 23%. And I think that that does speak to the improvements in care and early recognition. And while there's still work to do, I'd like to celebrate the successes when we have them. The big caveat to this work, though, and, and what we realized in these types of analyses is that there are still significant disparities between countries of different income levels. For example, the estimated case fatality rate for sepsis and septic shock is twice as high in lower income versus higher income countries. When developing sepsis guidelines, I think the major challenge we encountered at the WHO was creating guidelines that were globally appropriate and context relevant. And this goes back to what Sutritra is saying, which is, how do you make something that is both evidence-based but also individualized to the patient? Now, imagine trying to do that on the global scale. We know that sepsis is a heterogeneous clinical syndrome. It's defined by the host pathogen relationship, and outcomes are significantly impacted by access to care and resource availability, just like John said as we know, and as we've said repeatedly actually throughout this panel, is that we now know that repeated fluid boluses of 20 mLs per kilo for septic shock is not appropriate in all settings and for all patient populations. So as the guideline development body, so an institute like the World Health Organization, how does one take into consideration the different patient populations, the different sepsis etiologies, patient individual comorbidities, as well as resource constraints to create an evidence-based guideline that's actually broadly applicable and feasible. I actually think that's the greatest challenge to guideline development um, at the global scale. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Teresa. And I really want to thank all the panelists for being very uh, timely and for really great insights that, that they have given so we're going to move to the discussion and I would ask the experts that we invited to participate now to turn their cameras on so everybody can see who they are. Um, I would also encourage anybody and I see thank you to um, Bruno who has already responded to some of the questions um, and uh, you know feel free to any of the panelists to um, respond to those questions but you also give you an opportunity to respond live. So. I'm going to go to Jerry first, I think, offered to answer the first question about where to find these guidelines. And we'll appreciate that these different types of guidelines. So there's going to be guidelines for early detection that may be used in different contexts, those guidelines for management in the PICU. But Jerry, you want to just give some guidance to that that question? And i will be happy for any of the other panelists to to add to that, either um, in the chat or live um, following that.
4: Um, Thank you for a very nice question. Um, I agree that the early identification of signs of sepsis is really difficult because it could be the presentation of most childhood illnesses in the early stages. Um, But um, one of the things that um, I found was a good resource was the um, um, NICE sepsis guidance that was published in the UK in 2016. It's available open access. um, And one of the things I like about it particularly is it gives you some information about um, high risk um, pre-existing factors in children that predispose them to uh, be at risk for sepsis. Um, so, if um, if you're unfamiliar with them, they're things like age under one, um, recent surgery or trauma, um, being neutropenic, being on chronic immunosuppression, and having um, indwelling lines like a central venous line or having some sort of long-term um, uh, line in, in situ. So um, I think um, that, that's very useful. And I know in our study that we found that uh, more than 85% of the patients that developed sepsis while in hospital um, uh, met one of those criteria, at least one. Um, so that was very useful um, way of weeding out the ones with increased risk from other, other patients. And then the other thing I would advocate is having some sort of um, pediatric early warning system um, in place. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain that it has to be a particular one. I think it's having a process is useful um, at um, making people look um, ahead for signs of patients becoming physiologically unwell. Um, and then that helps them to prepare to intervene earlier. Um, so, certainly in, in our study, we saw that um, 97% of the patients that we treated with suspected sepsis had um, given us some warning via the pediatric early warning score. So the very small number of children that didn't give us warning were ones that didn't have um, a usual physiological response to being very unwell. And so I would suggest that those two things would be
7: useful to help you.
2: Any of the other panelists want to jump in and provide some other suggestions and please feel free to add it to the chat.
7: Mark, may I add some additional comments too? Yes. Uh, we have some sepsis, community-acquired sepsis due to invasive meningococcal infections or currently invasive group A streptococcal infections. We should keep in mind that the alarming symptoms is very important for pediatric emergency care. Also in the pediatric intensive care, like fever and non-blanching crash, or during the invasive gas infection, we, follow, we found a lot of patients come our clinic with a. A pneumonia complicated with mpma and we should note the current epidemiology uh, as Sushitra mentioned that there are different agents are responsible for the sepsis in worldwide some countries have a tropical disease some countries have uh, dengue or others and i think that for some disorders you we maintain that specific algorithms like invasive medical disease fever and non crash children admitted to the emergency care net, please check the capillary field time and hypotension and this is the first hour this is the gold hour is very important for these children too and i think that if we select some uh, this specific microorganisms, some specific infections, uh, we have a chance to harmonize this kind of guidelines because our guidelines include all age groups, one month to 18 years of age in PICU, and all infectious diseases, including bacteria, virus, parasites, and others, all children who have, pre- who are previously healthy or who have underlying conditions, including even a compromised one. It's difficult to say something about uh, one fit for all four of these children is not possible at this condition. We need to uh, personalize for each uh, agents or each child, depending on their age or depending on your geography. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Anybody else? Okay, let's move to the next question. And John, and I think you are the person who is going to respond to this question that's asked about funding for uh, PICU and there has been thank you to those who have responded um, in the chat. John, maybe you want to give some insight into to how um, patients pay um, or how your system is funded.
6: Yeah, thank you very much. We have different options in terms of funding. There's a national health insurance which is able to cover part of it and mostly it covers the, uh, usually the antibiotics and then the resusti- uh, inotropes, the IV fluids that we use. But beyond that, um, oxygen and others, the patient eventually will have to pay. Um, what we, uh, we have done is at least not to, uh, the patients do not pay upfront. So what they do is that after treatment, that's when they look out for. So the priority is to get a patient in initiate treatment with whatever is available. And after that, the patient, those who pay out-of-pocket will pay out-of-pocket fully and those who are not able to do that. We also, we have a support system, financial support system. So we've established a, a foundation a fund to raise funds in support of children who uh, come to the ICU. So uh, those who cannot afford or uh, lose their funding at some point in time, we are able to provide them with uh, the, uh, financial support at least to pay for what is emergently needed to manage the patients. And after that, we think about the rest of our social welfare uh, units also in the unit where, in, in the hospital, which also sometimes take up some of the costs. So um, that is the approach, multi-prong approach to support uh, families healthier in the hospital.
2: Thank you, John. Is there anybody else who wants to um, respond to that question?
3: Yes, yes, please. I just, thank you. I just want to comment about the fund, the, the patients. Um, in Brazil, we have the Unified Health System, we call here SUS, of the federal government and have to the state governments. They pay for the treatment for all patients, have sepsis or no, no sepsis. Um, now we have around a six, 600 icus pediatric icus and mixed icus and two hundred of this is uh, a government paid in fund to treatment for the, the child. Uh, this uh, is enough, probably no, but this meets most the cases. I I can say, but uh, we have this this funded, and in the the most uh, cases, this uh, is enough in part, uh, it, but it's very important because if you don't have this, is a big problem, because more, I think is approximately 400, this ISUs is private, and you need to pay for the treatment, and 200 is to, for government uh, foundation. Thank you for the question.
2: Thank you, Cynthia, and, and while you're there, we, there was another question to, uh, to ask about whether there was a a checklist for sepsis in your unit. So what what do you use to for, for early recognition?
3: Yes, we have in both the private and the public hospitals, the checklist in the emergency departments and the ICUs too. from the, the sepsis protocol, from to which the sepsis protocols are open for patient follow-up until to the diagnostics is confirmed or not to take the treatment. But this, uh, I agree totally, because it's different in, in very parts of, of Brazil, because in South, it's so different, distinct uh, comparative to Amazon, for example, because the age of the child, because the disease is so different is impossible. It just one checklist or, or just one guideline, because this we have several checklists and um, protocols here in Brazil to, to to sepsis, but in the most cases, we in the, the locals where I worked in the private and the public, we have the checklist in the emergency in the ICU to, to open this protocol.
2: Thank you very much. The, the final one is more a comment, really, about the fact that sepsis should still remain the um, the initial differential diagnosis rather than disease-specific diagnosis. And I'm gonna turn that into a question and put that out to the panelists. Does there anybody on the panel or any of the experts want, want to respond to that about uh, the importance of doing that?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a wonderful comment. And um, uh, all the, sepsis, I mean, although it, up until now that, the thought process has been that sepsis is caused by bacteria, and therefore the the uh, the whole stepwise approach includes fluids, cultures, antibiotics. So while it's important, so I certainly early recognition and an evaluation is important. There's no there's no taking that away from the initial. First hour, evalu- uh, first hour management, but having evaluated, we need to kind of broaden the differential. So while it is sepsis, what is the etiology? Is it bacterial? Is it dengue? Is it some other virus? Is it malaria? Because if you're going to give, in our hospital, we pretty much gave broad spectrum antibiotics to everybody, I think about until about 10 years ago. So if they presented with any organ dysfunction, fever and shock, they got antibiotics, but now it's a little more nuanced. And so they still get it within, if they need it, they they do get, and sometimes some patients may get antibiotics, which we would stop in 24 hours when the clinical picture is a little clearer. But um, I think the point that is made that Is being emphasized now is that there are many, many etiologies that lead to a common presentation of sepsis. And therefore, while um, I mean that early recognition is important, so is the fact that we need to give appropriate therapy and not uh, antibiotics for all and worsen the antibiotic, um, you know, microbial resistance and all those other problems.
2: Teresa?
0: I think maybe what we need to do is change our framing of how we think of sepsis. So sepsis should be on the differential for a child with multi-organ dysfunction or comes in with an acute decompensation and fever. And then within that, then we start thinking about what is the differential then for sepsis. And I completely agree. I think we need to broaden our mental model of what can cause a sepsis. And I think if we learned anything from the COVID-19 pandemic, it was that viral sepsis is a very real entity. Uh, So I agree with an echo with exactly what you said.
2: Um, Can I ask a question then of the panelists? What what do you think is the role of parents and engaging parents in early recognition of sepsis? And any one of you, please jump in.
0: You mind if I actually asked if John can answer that question too? Yeah. Part I wonder because uh, delayed in presentation is a significant risk factor for mortality. And so I think going back to how do we empower families and. And parents to identify sepsis and bring their children in sooner. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on it, John.
6: Yeah, um, thank you very much, Theresa, for the, for throwing the question to me. Um, it's it's interesting how I personally engage parents with uh, within my units, and uh, I tend to have uh, uh, really down to their level layperson discussions in terms of uh, patient-centered care, trying to understand what goes on back home. We we are planning or we are in the process of putting a study together to understand that. But whilst doing this, what I have known is that when they come to us now and we approach them, we teach them to act of the patient care, the care of their, 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 their child, eventually they become partners so looking at the bigger picture of identifying sepsis early probably one of the approaches that we in our setting can look at and others can look at is where we see the the world where we call them child welfare clinic where they go in for their Uh, routine immunization, growth monitoring, and so on and so forth, if we are able to capture these parents and then educate them at that level, uh, most likely they are partners. Nobody wants the best for their kids than they themselves, and to be able to get them to understand what uh, to look out for when the child is sick and where to seek is very important, and how to quickly, if the child is not improving, using their own gut feeling, which I guess is an important indicator. When a mom tells you that there's something wrong with my child, there's really something wrong with the child, and we don't have to brush them aside, we don't have to push them aside. So um, These are some of the approaches that I think we can judge, and, I mean, extrapolating from the little experience I've had within my unit with parents.
2: Thank you very much, John. Is anybody else who, Cynthia, uh, that's on the same topic, I presume. Okay, carry on, unmute Thank and you. carry on. Yeah. Thank you. And, and we, uh, Bruno, will the come to you. Yeah. Thank you.
3: About the family, I think here in Brazil, it's more easy for families with the chronic complex child. It is has more trained families in general, and they. Come back for the treatment pause. Pause ICU, and for us is more easy. When you have a health uh, health child, the the family never think about the disease. When have disease, you think in disease because he is more more easy with the the, the chronic complex child.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Well, Bruno, you had a comment that your hand was up and then came down. You, I think, you wanted to comment more on. The, either on this parent thing or you had another comment that you, you put in the chat about um, antibiotic use.
6: The antibiotic use for us is uh, uh, a target uh, completely resolved in this moment, in part of the country, not in all part of the country, but in hospitals that I work is a problem resolved. But uh, I have a question uh, about the inpatients with sepsis, the inpatients with sepsis, we have a experience of delay of antibiotic therapy. I would like uh, uh, to uh, know the experience of the colleagues of the delay of antibiotic therapy in inpatients patients.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, there are some other questions in the chat. I don't know if anybody wants to respond to any of those, any of the panelists. I think you can all see that. Any, any mm-hmm. of those raised questions, John?
6: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a question by Ursula on um, how to deal with patients with uh, multiple organ dysfunction, cytotoxic hypoxia uh, with high mixed uh, saturation. Um, this is a very difficult one, especially in our uh, in, in resource-limited ICUs. Uh, we tend to have to determine who is admitted and who is not admitted based on um, um, the little resource we have and making it available to the one who will benefit the most. Uh, we have had mixed outcomes. I know you are saying... Um, um, the question is whether to allocate the resources to others instead of, uh, and you have used the word irreversible stage. Um, I'm not sure at my level whether um, I can say irreversible stage, but we've seen very uh, bad uh, patients who have recovered when you give them the chance. So it's it's not it's not easy to make that determination that this patient is going to make it or not. Sometimes the one you think is going to make it actually is the one who don't make it. And the ones you think who, who don't make it are the ones who make it. So depending on the resources again and the scale available, I think um, um, that's how best that can be determined. Thank you.
2: Yeah, does anybody else want to jump in on that really challenging topic of you know, withholding treatment essentially and saving resources in children who we feel are not going to respond? Yeah, it's a very difficult uh, question.
7: I agree with John. It's very difficult to question. In my country, all children below 18 years of age are uh, all cost of the hospitalization, including pediatric intensive care, and in it are reimbursed by the Minister of Health. We have no problems for this kind of treatment regarding the budget. But sometimes some uh, Regarding this question, some children came very late period, there are a lot of multi-organ dysfunction, but at this period we try to give standard of care for these children too. But uh, we are pediatricians and we well know that uh, children are not like adults and we give some treatments and we have a very good response from children. Is, uh, who are uh, admitted to intensive care unit in with a very worse condition? For this reason, it's it's very difficult. It's very uh, difficult question for me, and due to ethical reason too, because the parents have some hopes. Parents have some uh, yes, they have some concerns about this, but uh, we have no chance to say we did not give standard of care to these children because we have no uh, benefits from this treatment for these children. Thank you very
2: much, Teresa.
0: Yeah, I think in trying to pull some of our themes together today from our conversation, I think new technologies and innovations and ways that we can automate the early screening, those are going to be critical. But also kind of to to Bruno's point, we do know from the global sepsis report that one in four cases of sepsis actually are hospital acquired. And so I just want to also remind people that while we're really excited about new technologies and innovations that we can and should still pursue, I think that these are preventable sepsis cases that are happening on our watch. And they're also happening oftentimes because of interventions that we're doing and to make a plug for the very boring, but ever important like infection prevention and control. So we can't forget that as we're still pushing the boundaries and trying to think of the new technologies.
2: Yeah, so thank you very much. We've got a couple of minutes left and I really want to um, take these last couple of minutes and once go first of all, to thank everybody who's contributed to this. Thank you very much for Uh, WifPix and Brenda for organizing and you know coming up with the theme and everything, and thank you for open pediatrics for for hosting this, but just as final thoughts for sort of people to take away. I'm just going to go around the, the panelists just one at a time and ask you just to give one sentence that you really want to summarize. A message that you really want to give to our audience, and once, and also just to thank our audience for participating today and for all the fantastic questions and everything. So, Cynthia, just one minute for you.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about physiotherapists because have uh, some uh, point here. Uh, the physiotherapist normally here in Brazil helps to early reconnection and orientation to the family in the first time. Uh, We just make exercises or or help in other things uh, like uh, early mobilization when he's staying in the ICU. First, this we help in the mechanical ventilation to uh, principal in the me- non-invasive mechanical ventilation normal in Brazil, the physiotherapist uh, institute the in non-invasive mechanical ventilation in emergency and, and two in the, in the ICU. Uh, thank you very much for the, this opportunity. Thank you very much, dear Brenda and the group and Mark and, and World Federation and Open Pediatrics for this uh, amazing morning. Thank you for the all panelists and participants.
2: Thank you, and I'd ask you to be brief. Jerry. your your final thoughts.
4: Um, I um, was pretty humbled listening to a lot of the other um, discussion from participants, and and it made me really appreciate that one size doesn't fit all, um, and that local collaborations within um, countries um, are very powerful in um, mobilising a structured process for trying to address local challenges.
2: Thank you. Satitra?
5: Yeah, uh, I think in a country uh, such as India, which is so vast and um, health beds are few, I think I agree with some of the thoughts earlier that we need to partner with the families and uh, get the information out, what are the early signs of sepsis so they present early, and then the treatment is much easier and faster and more
2: likely to succeed.
6: Thank you, John. Yeah, I'll um what um, Ranjit had just said, partnering with parents and also ensuring that healthcare workers are also um, educated. So awareness creation, and then also improving our ability as well, healthcare workers to identify and treat services.
2: Thank you, Teresa.
0: Yeah, I echo what's been said. And I really think that we won't be able to successfully implement sepsis guidelines globally or locally if we don't take into consideration the patient, the pathogen and resource availability. So context really matters. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you so much, everybody. And thank you very much.
0: This has been a production of Open Pediatrics.